Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Be here to be with you and to have those of you joining us online with us as well. We're continuing our series uh, AD 30, which is basically the life of Jesus Christ. And I want to talk today about something, one of my favorite passages in Scripture, and one of the men who eventually became an apostle, who was hostile to religion, but open to Jesus, which I think describes an awful lot of people in Western culture today. In 2016, the Billy Graham Center commissioned a survey of 2,000 people who don't actively participate in religion. They're called the unchurched. The survey asked these people about how they perceive Christians and Christianity. This included their view of Christianity, their willingness to talk about faith matters with Christians, how they would respond to being invited to a church, and which types of invitations they would be most willing to accept. The data found that many unchurched people, now this was actually south of the border, so I would suspect there'd be a little less here, found that many unchurched people think well of Christians and are open to engaging matters of faith. 42% of the unchurched think that Christianity is actually good for society. 33% admire their Christian friends' faith. Up to 67% would be willing to attend a church event, depending on the kind of event. Richardson concludes that the unchurched include a massive number of people who are open to being invited, open to being persuaded, and connected to a local congregation. This analysis counters misconceptions about the unchurched. Christians commonly overestimate the hostility of the unchurched in matters of faith. We can slip into viewing them as mini versions of Richard Dawkins, hostile to all things Christian. Not all of them will constructively engage us, they write, of course, but many will. Many people are open to faith. Christianity may be on the wane in certain areas of Western society. I think we'd all agree Canada is one of them. But the idea of spirituality isn't because people are made in the image of God, which means they ask these questions whether they go, whether they go to a Christian church or whether they're going to some other form of spirituality that we wouldn't say is true or leading to truth. People are open because they're made in the image of God and they're spiritual beings. And that isn't going away. Today, a lot of different terms are used to fill out what we call the unchurched, people who have never been part of a church, or they aren't at this point. Uh, you'll see the term the de-churched, which would describe people who have sort of given up on the church, but they haven't necessarily given up on God, so they're trying to have, in a sense, a private relationship with Christianity. A newer term is the deconverted. They have given up not just on church, but they have given up on God and would actually renounce a former conversion. That would be called somebody who's deconverted. They have no faith in God at this point. A more recent term that we're all familiar with is the nuns, one of the fastest growing parts of Western society, the nuns who have no religious affiliation whatsoever. Now, some of these groups overlap because somebody might have been churched at one point, become de-churched, become deconverted, now a part of the nuns. These last three groups are growing exponentially. The nuns were recently surveyed by Pew Research Center in the States. That would include atheists, agnostics, and people who would just say they're nothing in particular. 
And here are the key reasons that they sort of landed where they've landed. 60% would say, I question a lot of religious teachings. So they're just skeptical of religious teachings, not just Christianity, but religious teachings in general, 60%. 49% would say, I don't like the positions churches take on social and political issues. That would probably relate more to the states where you have primarily two political parties. It's a little different up here. 41% would say, I don't like religious organizations. I find myself in that group at times. That was a joke. All right. 37% would say, I don't believe in God. 36% would say, religion is irrelevant to me. 34% would say, I don't like religious leaders. You have all of these reasons where people land in this group of no religious affiliation at all. And we tend to give up on these groups of people because we tend to think they're the most skeptical groups of people. But there are a lot of people who are hostile to the church. They're hostile to religion, but they're open to Jesus. And actually, I would say that best describes one of the 12 apostles. I would say that Matthew was a nun. He was churched, he became de-churched, he became deconverted, and I would say by the time he met Jesus, he was probably a nun. And I want to talk about that and what might have changed his heart. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. You'll find a story similar to Matthew's following of Jesus in both Matthew and Mark, but we're going to read the one out of Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. If you have a Bible near you, you get to the New Testament, it's on page 48. Page 48 in the last third of the Bible, Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. Now we're picking up the story right where we left off last week where Jesus had healed that guy, the guy who was you know, let down through a roof, said, your sins are forgiven, and I'm healing you. After that, verse 27, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi. Now He's got two different names, Levi or Matthew. It's very common in that culture to have multiple names. A tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth, probably a customs booth, probably on the edge of the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow Jesus. And Levi gave a big reception for him, for Jesus, in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. Well, the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John, John the Baptist, often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, you can't make the attendance of the bridegroom, that would be like your bridesmaids and groomsmen, you can't make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they'll fast in those days. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment, otherwise he'll tear both the new and the piece and the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins. It'll be spilled out, and the skins will be ruined." But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. So Jesus is still fairly early in his ministry at this point. 
He has performed a lot of public miracles, which means Jesus is not a secret anymore. The word is out. He's gathered most of his 12 apostles, disciples, not all of them. But along with his popularity, at this point also came some opposition. He's just claimed the authority to forgive sins. He's healed enough people that now we saw last week uh, religious leaders from Jerusalem, from Judea, from Galilee, all the towns are starting to follow Jesus, mainly because they're the orthodoxy police. They want to make sure that Jesus is credible, that Jesus isn't leading people astray. They're the ones who want to watch out for that. So he's now claimed authority to forgive sins. That's created some opposition because that's an indirect claim to be God. So now this group of people tends to stay in the crowds from now on. So the crowds that are around him now contain the kind of people who ultimately wanted him executed. These are the kind of people who did see to it that he was executed. And in this passage, we sort of see a contrast between the religion of Jesus and the religion of his day. Because in this passage, over the issue of associating with Matthew, those two religious views come in conflict. First, the religion of Jesus never created a separation between them and us. Matthew, or Levi, whatever you want to call him, came from a devout religious home. You don't name your kid Levi unless you're a religious home. In fact, his name Levi was from the tribe. You remember the 12 tribes of Israel? Well, there was this one tribe that wasn't supposed to inherit any land. That group of people were to provide the religious services, the religious system for the nation. The priests also came from that tribe. So it's possible, it's most likely he's a Levite, and it's also possible that Matthew was born a priest. Back then it wasn't a calling, if you will. You were born into it if you were the family of Aaron. So he's a Levite, most likely, and it's possible he was raised to be a priest. And he was raised in this strict sort of church home, a Jewish home. He would have known the scriptures. He would have gone to synagogue school. He was churched. But it didn't stick. Maybe he just had a skeptical heart. You know, if you have five kids, one of them's like Matthew. You know it. He needs everything proven to him. I was actually that kid. I needed everything proven to me. Maybe he was disappointed with God. As he got older and he, he looked at God's promises to Israel and their new reality, Israel was a conquered nation. And if you look at the Old Testament, all the things God promised to Israel, and you looked at your life as a Jew in the first century, you're concluding, you know what? God doesn't seem to be coming through the way God said he was going to come through in the Old Testament. It would be easy to become a little agnostic if you're a Jew in the first century. Because it looked like God had sort of left you. Maybe it was just too narrow. You know, maybe Matthew had a lot of friends he wanted to invite to youth group, and the youth group really didn't want his friends because they were sort of from the wrong side of the tracks. That was before there was tracks. I get that. Maybe he saw the way the religion treated the kind of people that he actually liked. But it was too much for Matthew, and Matthew didn't just wander a bit. Matthew went to the other side. He threw it all away. Say, how do you know that? Because Matthew did the one thing you don't ever want to do if you're a Jew in the first century. He took a job actually working for the Roman government. The people who had conquered them. He was a tax collector. He worked for Rome, which means he was absolutely despised by his fellow people. He would have been viewed as a traitor to his occupied nation who had been conquered by Rome. 
In fact, when the religious people talked about tax collectors, they grouped the term tax collector with murderers and robbers, sort of as a class. They were barred from the synagogue. At this point in Matthew's life, he cannot go to church. Think about that. Nobody wants him in church. It was assumed that he was corrupt. Now, this is a little different than, you know, the CRA in Canada or the IRS. Those are reputable places to work for. Tax collectors in the New Testament were notoriously dishonest. There were a lot of taxes. There was a poll tax. There was an income tax. There was a ground tax. There was a grain tax. There was a wine and oil tax. There were duties if you were going on roads or through harbors or through markets and you wanted to sell your wares. So there are all kinds of places you would pay taxes. And they weren't all published on the World Wide Web yet. So rates were often unknown. Rates could change. So abuse was rampant. In fact, if the tax collector came to you or you're passing through that area and he's got a high rate for you and you can't pay it, well, then he'll basically offer you a higher interest loan. So the tax collectors became loan sharks and put people into poverty. Abuse was rampant. There was a form of taxation in that culture that might have existed yet in Jesus' day, might have been outlawed. It was called tax farming, where basically... You and, if you're a business person, you and other business people would bid on, on the rate that you're basically the, the gross amount of taxes you would raise in a specific province. So somebody might bid on taxes in Judea. Somebody else might bid on taxes in Galilee. And whoever bid the highest amount, Rome would say, okay, you're responsible to get us that amount of taxes. And then they could pretty much get it any way they wanted to. And it was abusive. Matthew was a part of that. He's right in the middle of that. Everyone hates him. The religious people hate him. He's a traitor. But Matthew's been listening to Jesus. He's in the customs booth on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has preached a lot of sermons there. He often used the edge of the sea as an amphitheater where he could sort of get out on a boat, talk to the crowds who are on the sand, and there's hills behind him. It's sort of the sound would just sort of be kept in that area. Matthew's been listening to Jesus, and Matthew had walked away as a young person, but he's an adult now. Maybe he's got a family. He's listening to Jesus, and he recognizes this is different than what I grew up with. And he's kind of beginning to open his heart to it. He knows Jesus is different. He's seen Jesus perform miracles, so Jesus has his attention. He's de-churched. He's probably a nun at this point. No religious affiliation. He's hated by the religious crowd, but he's listening to Jesus. Well, the Pharisees and scribes are listening to Jesus, too. They're in the same crowd. They're the religious elites. They believe that God would bless their nation again if they could get everyone to obey God. So the scribes, they typically were legal experts, sort of the lawyers of that era, and the law was the Old Testament, so there was no separation. It was a theocracy. So the scribes are coming up with how the Pharisees are to live out God's laws. They came up with every possible application of Scripture. They told the Pharisees, and the Pharisees put those things into practice. The Pharisees, the word Pharisee means or can mean like separated ones. So they wanted nothing to do with the rest of society. They separated into their own group. They were a holy huddle. They were a brotherhood. They referred to themselves as a brotherhood. Do you know what they referred to everyone else as? If you were Jewish... The people of the land, sort of like those people, the people of the land. And if you were a Gentile, food for the fires of hell. It was not the most gracious group of religious people. They lacked a little empathy for those around them. They hated Matthew and his friends. 
Matthew and his friends were the problem. They're the reason that God had removed his hand of blessing from Israel because they weren't following God. They were those people that we want nothing to do with. So Jesus finishes up a sermon. He heads over to Matthew's booth. Matthew had been listening to Jesus for some time. This certainly isn't their first occurrence. Time had passed since they first met. He says, Matthew, I want you to follow me. Today's the day. We're rounding up a group of people. We're kind of filling it up. There's 12 slots. Love to have you be part of one of those slots. Matthew left the tax collector's booth that day, and he followed Jesus. Now, what I love about Matthew, then, his first inclination was to pull together all of his friends. And they are like the wrong crowd. They were the people of the land. I mean, they were the worst. The religious people would never mix it up with any of his friends. In fact, in that culture, if you were to have dinner with somebody, table fellowship, reclining, which they would, they would sort of eat reclining, reclining at table fellowship with somebody was viewed as approval or acceptance. So when Jesus is with a tax collector, when Jesus is with a robber, when Jesus is, in some cases we see it in the scriptures, there's a prostitute there listening to a sermon, he's reclining at meal with somebody like that, to the religious people that signaled approval. If you're out for lunch with somebody in that culture, it means you accept them and you approve of their lifestyle. That's what's going on here. So you avoided those people because you don't want other people to think that you approve of that. Those people, those people knew that as well. And the religious system of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the scribes, etc., had created this us and them mentality. The whole religious system, including the synagogue, where people like this were not welcome, and the temple, which had courts separated, so the court of the Gentiles, you couldn't go out of the court of the Gentiles into the court of Israel, or you'd be killed in Jerusalem. The whole religious system separated the in crowd from the outside crowd. But not Jesus. Jesus isn't a religion. Christianity is the byproduct of following Jesus. That's a religion. Jesus is the Son of God. So whatever religious expression comes from Jesus as a result of following Jesus should be consistent with who Jesus is and what he represented himself to be. So he loves Matthew. Matthew's made in the image of God. Matthew's lost. Matthew's open. He's de-churched. He's a nun. He spent time with Matthew. He cared about this formerly religious kid who now wants nothing to do with faith. And he wanted him back. And he knew that Matthew needed to know that even though he had abandoned God, God had not abandoned him. And Matthew saw this so clearly in his journey back to God that he did what nobody expected. He invited Jesus to this party. So Matthew's having this huge party and all of the wrong kind of people are there. Every notorious, questionable person from Capernaum is there. All the people that the church people would never sit down for a meal with, would never be seen with, would never do business with. None of these people had been in church for years, if ever. That's who's at his party with some religious leaders on the outside, on the outskirts, and Jesus. Jesus wasn't gonna miss this party. I love that about Jesus. Jesus wasn't going to miss the party that had all of Capernaum's worst. 
Second point, the religion of Jesus targeted those who had spiritual needs and knew it. That's why Jesus wasn't going to miss this party. He got a reaction from the orthodoxy police. We see that in verse 30. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, well, it's not those who are well that need a doctor. It's those who are sick. I haven't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So the Pharisees bring up this issue that we've discussed, that fellowship with somebody indicates approval. I mean, that, that was the culture. Those were the rules. They bring it up. Why is Jesus having a meal with those people? Jesus responds with an analogy. Sick people need a doctor. Well, people don't. Then he explains his analogy. Sinners need to repent. Righteous people don't need to repent. Now, he wasn't saying the Pharisees were righteous people, but they thought they were. He says, I'm going to spend my time with people who know they're sick. I'm going to spend my time with people who are open. Jesus didn't participate in a holy huddle. He went to the best parties. He spent time with those people. He didn't avoid anyone. He went out of his way to be with the kind of people that religion wanted nothing to do with, and he created a we culture, not an us and them culture. And one of the greatest tragedies in Christendom, in Christianity, is what happens to us when we become people of faith. Because you know what happens to us when we become people of faith? We become Jesus followers, and that's great. And then we go to church, and guess what? We find other people like us, and, we're, and they're Christians. And we're thinking, well, now we've got a lot in common with these Christians, and so we start getting in groups with them, and we start having less time for the people we used to know. We drop our old friends. We join a group of Christians. We start vacationing with them. We do groups with them, and we justify it all because we're the body of Christ. And that is wonderful, but it's also the greatest tragedy as it relates to reaching the people around us. Because we don't even know them sometimes anymore. I'm convinced that Jesus of Nazareth preferred to be with a room full of people who are far from God but open over being with a group of people who already were followers. I, I have no doubt about it. Because when you're with those kinds of people, that's a party because that's where the needs are. That's where God may be working in their hearts. That's where the inroads can be made to changing people's lives. That's who Jesus wanted to spend time with. He targeted those people. Third, the religion of Jesus was a celebration which could not be conformed or not be contained in a normal religious format. No, I'm saying that because of how Jesus responded to his criticism. So uh, let me explain this. They said to him, the disciples of John, so now the Pharisees are saying, okay, I want you to know, Jesus, you're the oddball here. The disciples of John the Baptist, who sent people your way, you know, he closed up shop, he sent his disciples to you. His disciples fasted and offered prayers at the dedicated times or appointed times for prayer. The disciples of the Pharisees, the most well-respected religious denomination of our era, they do the same thing. Yours, eat and drink, and with this crowd. So what they're saying is, Jesus, you're on an island by yourself here. Our group of people does a certain group of things, fasting, prayers at a certain point. John the Baptist group of people did the same thing. 
you're uniquely not following religious tradition. And they're trying to draw a distinction between Jesus' followers and everybody else. You guys are alone on a few things, even important things, prayers, fasting, the seriousness of religious routines. So Jesus gave them three illustrations to indicate why he's not a typical religious figure. That he's not religion. He's God. He doesn't fit into a solemn, morbid religious routine, which sometimes we turn Christianity into, by the way. And so he's more like a celebrated bridegroom. And he gives them three illustrations. He said, now I want you to think about what happens when somebody gets married. He's like, if there's a bridegroom, which he's saying is basically him, and you have all the, the bridesmaids and the groomsmen, and, and they all come to the wedding, and in that culture, you didn't go away for your wedding. You got married and you stayed in your house for a week. Sometimes you'd wear crowns like a king and queen's crowns. You stayed there. Everyone came and celebrated with you, which is really embarrassing you know, there's kind of a little bit of a properness to me about like going on a honeymoon and being gone for a week, you know. It's kind of nice to get away from everybody so they don't look at you the next morning like I wonder what they did last night. I'm sorry I said that in church, but isn't it a little awkward, you know? You're getting on a plane the next day, but you have to see her parents in that morning. That, not in that culture. In that culture, sorry, that was too much for some of you, I know. That's just the American in me. I apologize. I'm trying to get more Canadian all the time. It's really working. I'm saying process, foyer, all kinds of things. But Jesus is saying, you don't go to a wedding and have the bridesmaids and the groomsmen like fasting and you know being all morbid. No, it's a celebration. That's what a wedding is. And he's saying the Son of God is coming to the human family. He's spending time with people who need to be with him. He's reaching out into people's lives. He's fixing brokenness. Prisoners will go free. The blind see. Lepers are healed. I mean, this is a celebration. That's what I'm bringing, he's saying. He said it's like when you fix a garment. He said, when you fix a garment, you don't take old material and then with new material, sew it together because the new material's never shrunk yet. So as soon as you wash it the first time, it's gonna tear it apart. He says, you can't put those two together. You can't fit me into a religious system that's morbid and all about right and wrong and rules. There's more to it. I'm God in the flesh. I'm touching people's lives. He said, you can't take new wine, which I am, and put it in old wineskins. And old wineskins have already been stretched by the fermentation process. You can't use them over again. I'll break out of it. He doesn't fit. He's saying, I don't fit into religion. I'm different. My movement will be different. I'm more than a religion. And if you were used to the old system... You may prefer it, but that's not what I'm bringing. His kingdom, what he's saying is a celebration. It's a grace fest. It's God in a room full of messy lives. It's Jesus with Matthew and his friends. It's Jesus with you and me and what we were and you and me and what we would have been without him. It's Jesus with a group of people around us that need him. That's a party. That's what Jesus came to do. That's how Jesus wants to be in this world. He doesn't be wrapped up in a boring religion that's only rules and regulations for everyone around us. No wonder they don't want to be here with us when we put it that way. But it's a grace fest. It's God come into the human family revealing himself and rescuing us and allowing us to be part of rescuing others. My favorite story 
not in the scriptures, but my favorite illustration, which I tell about once a year, so you've heard it before, you're going to endure it, you're going to act like you haven't heard it before, please. In his book, The Kingdom of God is a Party, Tony Campola relates an experience he had late one night in Hawaii. He says, up a side street, I found a little place that was still open. I went in, took a seat on one of the stools at the counter, and waited to be served. This was one of those sleazy places that deserves the name Greasy Spoon. I didn't touch the menu. I was afraid if I opened the thing, something gruesome would crawl out, but it was the only place I could find that was open. Fat guy at the counter came over and asked me, what do you want? I said, I'd like a cup of coffee and a donut. He poured a cup of coffee, wiped his grimy hand on his apron, and grabbed a donut off the shelf behind him. Now, I'm a realist. I know that in the back room of that restaurant, donuts are probably dropped on the floor and kicked around all the time. But when everything is out there where I can see it, I really would have liked it if he'd used a pair of tongs and put the donut on some wax paper, but he didn't. I sat there munching my donut, sipping my coffee at 3.30 in the morning. The door of the diner suddenly swung open, and to my discomfort, in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It was a small place. They sat on either side of me. They were loud and crude. I felt completely out of place. I was just about ready to make my getaway when I overheard the woman beside me saying, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in a bit of a nasty tone, what do you want from me, a birthday party? Want me to get you a cake, sing happy birthday? Come on, said the woman next to me. Why do you have to be so mean? I'm just telling you. Why do you have to put me down? I'm just saying it's my birthday. I don't want anything from you. Why would you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party my whole life. Why should I have one now? Well, when I heard that, I made a decision. I sat and waited until the women had left and then I called over the fat guy behind the counter and I asked him, do they come in here every night? Yeah. The one right next to me, does she come here every night? Yeah, it's Agnes. She's here every night. Why do you want to know? If you're a preacher, you probably want a good explanation for that real quick. Think about that. Because I heard her say that tomorrow's her birthday. What do you say you and I do something about that? What do you think about us throwing a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night? Cute smile slowly crossed his chubby cheeks and he answered with measured delight. That's great. I like it. That's a great idea. And he called to his wife who did the cooking in the back room and said, hey, come out here. This guy's got a great idea. Tomorrow's Agnes's birthday and this guy wants us to go in with him and throw a party for her right here tomorrow night. His wife came out of the back room all bright and smiley. She said, that's wonderful. You know Agnes is one of those people who's really nice and kind, and nobody does anything nice and kind for her. Look, I said, if, if it's okay with you, I'll get back here tomorrow morning about 2.30 and decorate the place. I'll get a cake. No way, said Harry. Birthday cake's my thing. I'll make the cake. So at 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner, and I picked up some cray paper decorations at the store and made a sign out of big pieces of cardboard. The read, happy birthday, Agnes. And I decorated that diner from one end to the other. Had it looking good. The woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in that place. It was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. At 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open and in came Agnes and her friends. I had everybody ready. I was kind of the MC. 
And when they came in, we all screamed, happy birthday, Agnes. Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted and so stunned and so shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs buckled a little. She, her friend grabbed her arm to steady her, and as she was led to sit on one of the stools along the counter, we all sang happy birthday to her. And As we came to the end of the singing with happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you, her eyes moistened. When the birthday cake with all the candles on it was carried out, she just lost it. She wept. Never a birthday party in her life, which is probably why she's a hooker. Harry gruffly mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes. Blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow out the candles. And after an endless few seconds, he actually did. Then he handed her a knife and told her, cut the cake, Agnes. We all want some cake. Agnes looked down at the cake, and without taking her eyes off it, she slowly said, look, Harry, is it okay with you? I mean, is it okay if I kind of, what I want to ask is, is it okay if I keep the cake a while? Is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and said, sure, it's okay. You want to keep the cake, keep the cake. Take it home. Can I, she asked. And then looking at me, she said, I live just down the street a couple of doors. I want to take the cake home, okay? I'll be right back, honest. She got off the stool. She picked up her cake and carrying it like it was the Holy Grail, she walked slowly towards the door. And as we all just stood there motionless, she left. When the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. And not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange for a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But at that point, it felt like the right thing to do. So I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. And when I finished, Harry leaned over the counter and with a trace of hostility in his voice, he said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And in one of those moments when just the right words came, I said, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited a moment and he almost sneered as he said, no, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all like to join a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning? Now, for those of you whose sensitivities are a little offended by that, I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry at all. Because the Son of God came into this world to touch the lives of people who are far from him. Not to wait till they got their act together before they connect with Christianity or one of us. He came to reach them where they were at, to touch their lives. That's why he wanted to be in a room full of people like that. That's why I do too. That's why I hope you do. Because that's a party. That's not religion. That can't be contained in a little rule book of do's and don'ts. That's God in the flesh coming to redeem what was broken in all of us. And he did it for you. Maybe you never got that far off the path. But you needed Jesus too. Everybody did.
Just a couple of apps I want to close with. Hostile to religion, but open to Jesus. Number one, is my religion them and us, or is it we? When you look at the people around us, do you think, well, we're Christians, they're not? Or do you think, you know what? Yeah, there's a dividing line there, but we're all in process with God. And how can I help the person next to me take another step closer to full devotion to Jesus? We're all in this together. We all need God. We all need the true God. Or do we expect people to sort of come in all cleaned up? Yeah, they're welcome to come here, but on our terms. No, that's a little too much them and us. It needs to be we. Second, if I held a party, does it look like Matthew's at all? Or does it look like a church crowd? And I would just challenge you, if it only looks like the friends you have here at church, I'm just going to say it's going to be very hard to expand the kingdom of God in your life, in this church, in this community, in the world, unless you start figuring out how to connect with people who don't agree with you on some things, like the big things. And you prioritize that and say, you know what, I want to have a lot of people in my life and I want half of them to be Christians and I want half of them to not be Christians on purpose. So when they go through a crisis in their life, I'm there for them and they experience the love of Christ for me. Third, do I see Jesus as religion or a celebration of grace? You know, it's interesting how hard it is to grow churches in the Western world. Some parts of the world, Christianity is exploding. In the Western world, it's obviously waning a little bit. I think we need to focus a little bit more on who Jesus is and who he was and what he's done. And make what we believe a little bit more of a celebration of what God is actually doing and a little less of a religion. Even though it is. But a little bit more of the grace party that God is having in every one of our lives. And even many times as Christians, you know, we sort of like, oh, you know, another day of following Jesus. He said he might die for this. Kind of feels like it might be today. It's a grace party. It's God coming into the human family and rescuing us. It's a celebration. Let's not forget that. God, we thank you for your word. I love this story of Matthew I think Matthew is represented in our world by tens of millions of people in North America. They kind of grown up with Jesus, grown up for religion, kind of had enough of it and walked away. And, and he came back because he knew something must be true, something must be real. And then he had a real experience with you. Help us in our lives to be a person who can help others have a real experience with you. Help us to not see the world as them and us as people are hostile to Christianity, help us to not be hostile to people who are hostile to Christianity, but to see them as needing a God who loves them and seeing ourselves as a bridge for their faith. Help us to be like Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect, or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again, and God bless you.